Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Please join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the light of this new day. We thank you that you are the living God. You have made us alive. Your word is a living word. Your son is alive from the dead. Your spirit is a living spirit. We pray that you would come and make us alive, each of us, by your power and for your fame. In Christ's name, amen. Last week was Easter, as many of you know, and Easter celebrates in the Christian faith uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're told in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs for 40 days to his disciples. And then he taught them for those 40 days, and likely that's what we have in the New Testament, the teaching that he gave them. After which he then led them to a mountain and ascended before their eyes and ascended into heaven. And as they were looking up into heaven and their gaze was caught, two men appeared, two angels appeared, and they said, what are you doing looking up in heaven? The same Jesus that was taken from you this way will return in this way. And there you have the backdrop of the New Testament and the ministry of the church until today. The backdrop is the return of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ coming again to those that he went from. Now, when you are assured of someone's return, it makes a big difference. If you have young kids or young kids in your life, you're probably familiar with separation anxiety. You try to send them to daycare or nursery and they they freak out. And there's certain things they tell parents to do. They'll say, uh, develop a goodbye ritual that your kids know. Um, Make sure that you hand them off only after they're well-fed and well-slept. I don't know how you do that, but, you know, that's another thing. Have a consistent caregiver. But you see Jesus acting in the same way with his disciples. He feeds them well by telling them, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it weren't true, I wouldn't tell you. I go to prepare a a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, you know I'm going to come back for you. He also gives them a consistent caregiver, the Holy Spirit. He says, I won't leave you as orphans in this world where you feel like you don't have a daddy. But I'm going to send the comforter, the advocate, into your life. When you're assured that someone's going to return, it makes a big difference. It also changes the way that you behave and how you act. You know, whether it is uh, a friend that's returning from overseas, maybe you make a banner. Maybe it's your kid coming back from their first day at school. You make some cookies. Maybe it's a boss that's coming back early from lunch. You make busy. You make haste, right? If you know someone's coming back, your life is shaped by it. Well, likewise, the Apostle Paul says that we ourselves ought to be able to see in our lives the belief that Christ is returning by how we live and how we behave. And in the book of Thessalonians is a great place for us to camp. It's a book in every chapter the return of Christ is mentioned. And so uh, for the next couple weeks, I want to meditate on what does it look like to live in light of the return of Christ. And this morning in particular, what do you have to do with it? Sometimes when you're waiting for people, it's hard, right? I was reading an article this week on uh, spouses who are waiting for soldiers to return and different advice they give. You know, one piece of advice was stay busy, stay active. Another piece of advice was um, remember the promises you made to one another. Another piece of advice was get support, find a support group. Well, we get a similar message here in the scripture. You and I need the strength of other people to wait well for the return of the Son of God to earth. In fact, I would say, I don't think this is an exaggeration, we can't make it without the strength of one another. We cannot make it. We will not wait well. We may not wait at all for the return of God's Son. And that strength comes in the form of faith. I don't know how you think about other people's faith. Is it something that you rarely think about? Is it something that you notice and you think is nice and you appreciate, but you really don't see as necessary for your own life? How do you regard other people's faith? It might even be here you're looking into the Christian faith and you're noticing someone's faith in your life. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at the power of others' faith 
and the witness of others' faith in our lives. The power of others' faith and the witness of others' faith. Let's look at that together. First of all, how we experience that power and how we feel the impact of that power. Uh, there's an old country song that um, you may have heard. There's actually different titles of songs with this, different songs with the title, I Can't Get You Off of My Mind. Lenny Kravitz had one. Um, but this is an old one, and you could probably tell it's country by the lyrics. I can't get you off of my mind. When I try, I'm just wasting my time. Lord, I've tried and I've tried, and all night long I've cried. But I can't get you off of my mind. What would a country song be unless you were crying, right? I can't get you off of mind. Well, it, it's almost as if Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy could be singing this about the Thessalonians. If you notice what they said there, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, remembering you always, constantly mentioning you, remembering you before God. He's saying, the Thessalonians, I can't get you off of my mind. I can't get you out of my heart. And it's not occasional, right? I just mentioned, he says, always and constantly. That means remembering the faith of the Thessalonians was part of his, what you call, spiritual discipline. It was part of the regular action of his faith. It's not just occasional, it's not selective. He says, I remember all of you. When I became a Christian, um, I remember one of the strangest things that I was thrown into a community of people that normally I would not be friends with, right? People that normally I wouldn't be with. It might be culturally, racially, it might be just personality-wise. Like, I would never want to hang out with you if it were the fact that, that we were in the same church together. I will sometimes say this is one of the reasons, you know, we can't really understand how heaven will work. How could this person I really don't like be with me for all eternity, right? But Paul says here, all of you, he's not selective. He could appreciate all their faiths. It's not generic. He mentions the word you, the personal pronoun you, several times. And you can imagine that he was doing it by name. In fact, we don't have to imagine. You can go to the book of Romans Romans chapter 16, and Paul just goes on name by name. You know, I'm thankful for you, I'm thankful for you, I'm thankful for you. Are your prayers populated with the names of people? Not just generically. And it's not limited. It's not limited to thanks for just them. Last week at our church, uh, there were a couple parents in town for Easter. And I found as I was... Uh, thankful for the person, their son or daughter that I was talking to, I couldn't help but also thank the parents. You know, I found myself saying, you know, thank you for your son or daughter and the way they bless this community and the way they bless my life. Well, Paul, it's just not enough to give thanks for the Thessalonians. He's got to work it its way up to God. He says, I give thanks before God for you. You know, we really haven't got to the heart of the gift if we haven't got to the giver, right? That's the problem in life when we're just thankful for the little gifts God has given us and we don't work our way to him. We really don't get to the full appreciation. And so for all these ways, this is how Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus are experiencing the Thessalonians. 
But it also gets to this idea of how they're reflecting in the end God himself. Unlike this version of God that we're sometimes fed, of a God that's a force or a God that's a power or a God that is far off, in the Bible you find a God that knows his people by name. God instructs uh, the priest of Israel, I want you to write the names of the tribe of Israel on your chest so they know that they're known by me by name. God says, I will engrave you in the palms of my hand by name. Jesus knows his sheep by name. And we're told that he is a high priest that is always interceding for his people, never goes to sleep, constantly remembering them, always on their lips. Paul and his crew are just reflecting what they know to be true of God. And so, you see, our remembrance of other people really has to do with, do we know that God remembers us that way? But I want to mention as well the power this takes with thanksgiving. You know, for us, many times thanksgiving is a polite thing. Uh, don't forget to write a thank you note. You know, we instruct our kids, say thank you. It's a polite thing. In the Bible, thanksgiving is not polite. It's power. You see this running all throughout the scriptures, the power of thanksgiving. In fact, the, the, the book of Romans would say that the world fell into sin because of thanklessness. You, we all know the power of thanklessness. Do you know the power of thanksgiving in your life? I was reminded recently, um, I mentioned at the Monday Thursday service, that um, in our church, uh, Grace Downtown, one of our uh, brother's members stood up and gave a testimony about how God had used uh, his weakness in life. For him, it was stuttering. And he stood up, and it was such a beautiful display because he struggled as he gave the testimony, uh, as he stood up before us and showed his weakness. But he said, I'm understanding that God is using my weakness as a tool, an instrument in the lives of other people. And so at the end of that service, I ran into some friends that were members of Grace Downtown some years back, and this week, one of them wrote me an email, and they said this, so, so fun for us to be at Grace. Worth the drive to D.C. to hear that testimony. I've thought about it a hundred times in the past week. My weakness, God's tool. It was the faith of someone else that became the power through thanksgiving in this person's life. Much of modern spirituality is very individualistic, isn't it? It's about my spirituality or my faith, or my beliefs, or who God is to me. And we don't understand that uh, the faith will always be limited. If your faith isn't inclusive of other people, if you don't have a faith that needs other people, it really isn't a faith. It's not going to help you. It's not going to go anywhere. But what about the impact of the faith? Paul says this assurance resulted in him seeing that the, Th the Thessalonians were belonged and loved by God. They needed Paul's faith to understand that they were known by God and they were loved by God. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In other letters, Paul will say, you're chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Or he'll write, to the elect of God. Now, you know, when we hear that word election or predestination, uh, we mostly get upset. Now, you know, even in a Presbyterian church, that's going to happen, right? We mostly get upset. We say this is confusing, and it's natural because, you know, it plays into uh, sovereignty and uh, 
responsibility and the mystery of the way those work together, and we're finite. And people, especially in Washington, don't like to be finite. You know, we like to know everything and to be able to explain everything. But you know something? Uh, sometimes y your reason isn't the reason you get blessed by God. Your reason isn't the reason you get blessed by God. In fact, there might be ways that you're blessed by something, even if you don't understand it. Charles Spurgeon, who was an amazing preacher, a great theologian, would say, when I don't understand a doctrine, I imagine a chair sitting on the floor, and I go down and kneel before God. So, you know, you might be confused, but don't let it steal blessing from you. Or we might say this is unfair. And that's because of the particular culture that we live in. There are some cultures around the world that would have no problem with the idea of God's sovereignty. But we are in a culture that is shaped by self-determination. We believe self-determination equals self-worth. But the truth is, is self-determination that evident? Think about all the things that you had no power over. Who you would be born to. Where you would be born. The family you would be born into. The race of which you would be born. How tall you would be what color your eyes would be, what gifts you would have, what socioeconomic level you would be born into. In fact, you could make an argument that most of the substantial things in life that shape you, you had no control over, right? This idea of self-determination is really an illusion in our eyes. But that's okay because our self-worth isn't dependent on it. Our self-worth is actually wrapped up in the fact that the God of heaven and earth is reigning in our lives, that he is sovereign that our self-worth is determined by the free grace of God. And the reason I say that is because we can miss out on the, the mercy and the goodness that God is giving us in this passage. You know, we might get frustrated by seeing this, this idea of chosen and elected and say, why did God ever have to put that in the Bible? Well, you know, God never puts anything in the Bible casually. And whenever you see this doctrine mentioned in Scripture, it's never a doctrine of controversy, it's always mentioned in the context of comfort. It's a doctrine of comfort. Kids that do best in life are those that know that they're loved and they're secured and they belong, right? We know that. It's the same thing with the people of God. But this is the thing that's very striking and amazing about them. How do we learn that? We learn it from other people. Paul is basically telling these other people, you are chosen and elected by God. Because I can see God alive in you. And so I need other people. I need you. You need me to be able to speak into your life to say, yes, you belong to God, even if you don't feel like it. Yes, you are loved by God, even if you don't feel like it. Unless other people speak into you that way, you'll have a weak view of it. And so this is the power of other people's faith. But to, to close out on the last point, the witness of other people's faith is also vital. And here we see it in heart change and life change. First of all, heart change. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's a couple things you see there. First of all, that the Thessalonians allowed the good news of God's grace, the truth of God, to penetrate their whole selves. That means that they didn't lecturize the gospel, they didn't emotionalize the gospel, and they didn't dutyize the gospel. Right? Those are the three tendencies we're going to have. Some of us in this room 
because of how God has made us and it's glorious, you tend to basically function from the head up. You know, you, you tend to think and rationalize. Some of you, you feel everything. You feel your way into it. Others of you, man, it's duty. As soon as you hear it, you do it. All of those are important. Which one can you do without? None of them. In fact, whatever one you're weak in, you need to slide toward the other ones. And so maybe the faith of God penetrates your head, but it's really not penetrating your heart and your feet. Or it penetrates your heart, but you have pretty thin theological understanding. Or maybe it's, you, you get my point. To have full conviction from the Holy Spirit means that the grace of God and the truth of God is penetrating the entire person. I'm allowing it into all these different areas of my life. But then he goes on to say how it functions. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here the Bible is giving us some great insight. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see the mention of idolatry or idols. And uh, even if you're someone that hasn't read the Bible, you can probably figure out what that is. You know, those wooden or metal objects that people would fall down and worship or, you know, give praise, give obedience to. But, you know, we, we oftentimes think, well, those were primitive folk and we're not like that. Well, you know, primitive folk were pretty smart folk. You ever hear of Aristotle before, right? No dummies. Smart folk. And so we have to ask a deeper question to go, why were they doing it? Why did they turn to those things? They turned to those things for the same reason we turn to our idols. They turned to them for security, acceptance, favor, status. That's what those idols represented. And so you and I have these same things. They just take different form, right? You might have, uh, in your life, it might be control idol. That my life only has meaning if I can have control over my schedule or control over what people think of me, or control over my career. It might be approval idol. My life only has meaning if I have approval with a certain group of people, or if I can get into this inner ring of people, or if I have the approval of my spouse, or my parents, or someone in my field. It might be comfort idol. You know, my life only has meaning if I can be in a place of comfort. You're sort of like a hobbit. You know, you, you like to be in that place, the hobby, right? Right. Bilbo said he just loved to stay in his little place and not ever have to venture outside his door. It might be ideology, idolatry, where my life has meaning in that, you know, my opinions and what I believe about the world have meaning to people. It might be achievement idolatry. It might be race idolatry. It might be independence idolatry. My life only has meaning if I can be independent. It might be religion idolatry. My life is bound up in what I understand about my religious tradition. It might be irreligion idolatry. My life only has meaning if I stay away from religion. But in the end, it's all the same. Idols do the same thing. I looked at them for my acceptance, my security, my meaning, my comfort, my favor. And what Paul is saying here, the Thessalonians had turned from those false and dead things. They had turned away from them because they understood who God was. They understood who Jesus Christ was. The way and the truth and the life. They understood who their true acceptance was. Their true favor was, their true security was. It was won through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, death was conquered. What's our greatest fear? In the end, every little fear is one big fear, the fear of death. The fear I'll be no more. 
And so the resurrection of Jesus enables you and I to work backward against our fears and to tackle them. If God's got that covered for me, what can I fear Monday morning? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. If Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have death, he took away all my F's. He gives me all his A's before God. So I'm righteous before people, and I don't have to go to these idols for approval and achievement. Jesus is the one that delivered the Thessalonians. He's the one that delivers you and I. Heart transformation. Is the gospel transforming your heart at that level? Are you able to take the work of Christ and what he's done and the love of God and work it deep and specifically into your particular idol in your life? If so, you will be delivered, as Paul says. But there's also life change, the final point. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers. The Thessalonians had life transformation that resulted in a witness. The prime way it was seen is through their endurance through affliction. You know, we come to understand where people's faith is mostly through how they handle suffering. We really don't know how someone's going to do in their faith. That's why the Bible talks about perseverance of the saints. Those that persevere in believing God and going to God and not turning to coping mechanisms during their suffering or not lashing out against other people during their suffering or not just kind of, you know, running to an alternative life or an alternative universe. How do we endure suffering is what he's talking about. There's few things more inspiring than seeing people have endure suffering, not just for courage's sake, but for Christ's sake, where they're relating to him. And we have to understand that the Thessalonians, the way they learned that wasn't just on their own. They learned it by imitation, Paul says. You see, if you go to the book of Acts and you read about the background of this church, you understand that Paul was preaching to them. And in his preaching, he suffered. He was having great success among uh, the Jewish community there, but there were some that opposed him, and they dragged him before the proconsul, the Romans. And Paul, as you know in his story, suffered much for his witness in Christ. But it was that witness that wasn't just talking about love. It was love in action. Maybe you can think of someone right now, their witness through suffering has strengthened your own faith. I think about my wife watching her suffer through chronic illness, day in and day out, going, wow, that's what faith looks like. All of us need that witness. But not only the endurance, the extent. The Thessalonians were located at a significant place in the Mediterranean on a seaport that made its way and a highway that ran through the Roman Empire. And Paul is saying that their faith went as far as northern and southern areas of Greece, It had spread out, and he uses this Greek word that's very descriptive. I don't think he uses it anywhere else in the New Testament. This is what he says, that their witness was like resounding noise, ocean waves, an uproar of crowds, trumpets blowing, thunder rolling, reverberating through the hills and valleys of Greece. This little church had that sort of power and impact. Why? Because they were simply believing this gospel. They were turning to Christ, being delivered from their idols, and they were seeking to love and serve. 
And they had that effect. And it led other people to faith. And Paul says that it made less work for the apostles. He was glad. He said, because your faith has had such a powerful impact, we don't have to go around and evangelize as much. We don't have to send missionaries here and there because you're doing such a great job. You know, oh, that, that, that we would hear that in heaven, that the Trinity would say, you know, the churches in that Grace D.C. network, they're doing such a great job in Washington, D.C. We don't have to send as many people there. You know, Grace Meridian Hill is doing such a great job in this area. You know, we don't have to send any more folk there. They're doing it. Well, this is what Paul says the Thessalonians were accomplishing. And so if you and I are going to wait for the return of Christ successfully and be effective, we need one another's faith. I'd ask you to think, if you're part of this community, how are other people's faith changing dynamically? How do you need their faith? How will their faith change you this week? Or next week, let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us one another. Thank you for um, the people that you have called, how you live in them, and how we are changed by them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.